Welcome to Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners, the podcast for dentists who are ready to take their practice to new heights. Join your host, Stan Kinder, who has worked with the profession over four decades and now represents practice owners interested in exploring a relationship with a DSO. On the show, he explores ways to grow your income and increase the value of your practice. Expect thoughtful conversations with influential guests who are pioneers in the dental industry. From insightful dental consultants to brilliant marketing experts, from accomplished dental practice owners to innovative dental manufacturers, this podcast will bring you a diverse range of perspectives. Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners is here to equip you with the tools and information you need to thrive. Your practice's future begins right here. And now, here's your host, Stan Kinder. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners podcast. I'd like to introduce my guest today, Dr. Michael Goldberg. He is a founder of a group practice in New York City, as well as a coaching and consulting firm, Practice Perfect Systems. Dr. Goldberg, my goal with this podcast is essentially to expose the listeners to subject matter experts and folks who can give them some perspective that will help them be more successful in their uh, own practice environment. A good starting place in the conversation is probably maybe for you to just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your your journey in dentistry is sort of where you started to where you are today. Thank you so much for having me. I love the opportunity to help other people. So I started my, I guess, journey in dentistry in dental school. Uh, I went to Tufts Dental, Dental School in Boston, graduated magna cum laude near the top of my class, elected to the OKU Honor Society, got accepted to a an excellent residency program, and I thought that I had it made. And then reality hit. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I was fortunate. I, I was very fortunate. First, I came out of dental school during a very challenging economic period. Um, the the Jimmy Carter era. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I bought my first home during that era. Exactly. And, and exactly. Mortgage, uh, interest rate of 12.5%. It, it, that's that's when I that's how I built my first practice, uh, and so I realized early on that my skill and knowledge set as a dentist was probably not going to determine my success, and that was humbling. Um, I always prided myself on you know being a great dentist, but it became apparent early on that the business skills were the things that were going to probably make me more successful. And I, I, I was lucky because I came from, a, I was the first one in my family to go to college. I came from a family of business people, merchants. And I never realized how much of that language actually seeped into my inner thought processes until I got surrounded by a bunch of dentists who never thought about business. Right. Not in the same way I did. And in 1984, I, along with a couple of my key advisors, my accountant and my banker and my attorney and my wife, who was actually trained in accounting and had been doing office managing, we started a program through the continuing education department at Columbia University, where I taught. 
called Business Basics for Beginning Practitioners. And my interest in practice management just grew to the point where in 2017, as I was contemplating exiting my practice career, I formed this company, Practice Perfect Systems, to actually do consulting and coaching for practices. So it's been a very interesting journey. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. You know, it's kind of interesting uh, uh, when you talk about, you know, the recognition that clinical acumen uh, by itself perhaps is not enough to be successful. I, in a previous life, I used to do some practice management consulting myself, and I would very commonly tell uh, uh, clients or prospective clients, look, I know dentists who are superb clinicians who I would go to, I would send my family to but struggle to make a living. And on the other hand, I know many dentists who were very average, kind of middle of the road clinicians who do extraordinarily well because they master how to communicate with patients. They develop the business systems that are necessary to really drive practice performance. And, you know, those that are kind of at the peak of the mountaintop are those that can marry both. And uh, they're, uh, interestingly enough, few and far between in my experience. I agree. And I am so grateful that I was amongst those. So I had a, an amazing multi-specialty group practice in midtown Manhattan with a satellite in New Jersey. And I was able to combine all of those things that you mentioned to deliver the kind of dentistry that I just felt proud um, proud of doing. So being able to advise clients who are excellent clinicians in how to make that pay off <laughs> really just uh, just energizes me. I love it. Sure. sure. And back in my consulting days, also one of the favorite things I used to uh, uh, talk to my clients about is you know, the, the essential nature of a systems approach to managing a practice. So I said, you know, when you go into a McDonald's, whether it's in Massachusetts or Idaho, the French fry is going to be essentially the same. And it really doesn't make any difference who's preparing the fry. It's because they've got a highly systemized approach to how that happens from start to finish. And if you can achieve that same kind of systems approach in your practice, you'll be able to uh, achieve a much more consistent result for sure. So I love the name of your firm, Practice Perfect Systems, uh, for exactly that reason. So that's a little misleading because I think that a lot of people agree with what you've said. And I do to a certain extent. And that is that, especially in dentistry, because partly because of the nature of dentistry, where you're caring for people who are under stress, your ability, and you mentioned this before, your ability to communicate is really, really important. Absolutely. And that's not necessarily a system that you can easily teach. Some of that is innate skill sets, the soft skills that we talk about, that one needs to look for when you hire people 
And I'm a big fan of Vern Harnish, Scaling Up. Uh, there are a couple of great books that have made a huge impact on my on my life and in my career. Vern's was one of them. Influence by Robert Cialdini, another one. And Good to Great by Jim Collins. Yeah. Um, and I've had the, and actually all of Dan Kennedy's books. Oh, I, I am a huge Dan Kennedy fan. I think so, he, he's one of the most brilliant business minds ever. So I've had the pleasure out of those four authors, I've had the pleasure of meeting and working with three of them. Wow, that's great. So I've actually worked with Dan. So I joined a mastermind that Dan had created in 2006. So, I mean, I've sat down to breakfast with Dan and that's been great. Now I work with Bob Cialdini um, in the Cialdini Institute. I just had a, a conversation with Vern Harnish on Friday. It's been wonderful. That's uh, great. That's, that's from, great. From Vern Harnish, what I learned is, and from good to great, from Jim Collins, people first. So when I come into a dental practice, one of the first things I do is I evaluate the people because I can recommend systems. I can recommend strategies, but if you don't have the right people on the bus, as Jim Collins would say, it doesn't make a difference. Sure. You're not going to get the results that you want. So although I named the I named the company Practice Perfect Systems. It's the people using those systems that I think really create the results that people want. Yeah. And we're not taught that. You know, in dental school, there's no course. And I, I, I still teach in dental school, by the way. I, I'm a, an adjunct associate professor at Temple University in Philadelphia, where I direct the course in practice management. There's no course in people skills. There's no course in interviewing. There's no course in hiring properly right? And, and in managing people. And that to me, along with the, so Vern would say that there are four foundations to a business. It's people, strategy, um, execution, and cash. And there are no courses in either or any of those. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In dental school. So when I go into a, and I'm sure you've had this when you were a consultant, you go into a, to a practice and the systems involved in hiring people, the, the kinds of meetings or the, the strategic time that you spend analyzing where you are and where you want to go, the actual implementation, the execution of those systems and then how to manage cash flow. It's very rare that I come into a practice that has all four of those pillars, you know, squared away properly, which is why they wind up coming to me. Because yep. I couldn't agree more. You know, it's over the years, the vast majority of dentists that I encountered largely manage the financial side of their business, if they've got enough money in their checking account to pay their bills and to pay themselves some kind of income, that's really all that matters to them. And so there's not much in the way of any sort of deliberate, proactive approach to uh, how they manage that side of the equation. So it's interesting. 
So I've been in the business now, I guess, 50 years. So I have a nice broad view of how things have, you know, evolved. And today things are actually even worse. So 50% of the dental students are female. Yeah. And whether or not we want to admit it or not, I have a tendency of not being politically correct. The female dentists in general do not work as many hours right. as male dentists. They're less likely to be practice owners. And even the ones who are practice owners oftentimes have spouses that enable them to practice in a way that is not profitable. And I've actually had so many experiences over the last five, six years where I've gone, I've seen female owned practices that are more hobbies than they are businesses, facilitated by the fact that their spouse was making enough money and it enabled them to run a poorly run business. Right. Actually had a client who didn't pay herself for five years. Who does that? Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> when you think uh, the the money required to complete a dental education, I mean, a couple of years ago, the National Dental Education Association said that the average dental school grad came out of school with $284,000 of educational debt, uh, which is just insane. I think right now it's 340000 Wow. 340 Because I, I that's part of my lecture series. I'm actually in the process now of writing the new series that starts for the course that starts in March. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, COVID was a tremendous amplifier and accelerator of all the pathology, business pathology that we found in, in that was was already there in dental practices. Yep. How it's just gotten a lot worse. So we talk about pimp people, for instance. Well, the employment issues right after the pandemic caused people to hire anyone, just warm bodies to fill spaces. And now we're dealing with the aftermath of people that have, you know, poor team performance, fractured practice cultures, and lower productivity and profitability, just at a time when inflation is going up. Yeah. So it's like a perfect storm, if you would. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah everything you uh, you say resonates uh, very much with me. Can you maybe describe a circumstance or two where you achieved a certain outcome on behalf of a, a client and maybe talk about sort of what in your mind drove the changes and, and led to the success? Absolutely. So I have a couple in mind, actually, and, and they're all based on what we just spoke about, which is people. Yeah. So I'll come into a practice and I do something called a 360 degree interview process. I want to know from the doctor and the doctor's significant others what their opinion of the practice is. I want to know from the staff. I want to know from the staff's referral sources. And I want to know from their patients and their vendors. So I try to get a good picture of what's going on. And I did this with a, um, a group 
Actually, it's a group of um, endodontic specialists. And I realized that the person they thought was their office manager, who had the title of office manager, just was not up to par. Actually, when I spoke to one of their referring doctor's offices, the referring doctor's offices actually thought someone else was the office manager because this other person was the one who solved the problems that they had when they wanted to refer a patient. So I diagnosed the problem and that's really, I'm a dentist. So, you know, I like to diagnose and then present a treatment plan. So the diagnosis was, you have the wrong person at the top. And so I helped them identify, hire, and train a new practice administrator. We got this old office manager off the bus and this practice, and this is not that long ago, the doctors felt so relieved because they were doing so many of the things that a practice administrator should be doing. Their time was now open. They went ahead and they now bought three other practices. Wow. So they've expanded exponentially. Why? Because their time was freed up from doing, from managing something that they shouldn't have been managing. So that was one example. Another example is a practice in South Carolina. I actually have a little niche. So I work a lot with dentists who do dental sleep medicine mm -hmm. and TMJ in their practices. And this is a specialty practice like that in South Carolina. And same diagnosis. The diagnosis was we didn't have the right people on the bus. So we hired this person who has, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be speaking to in about an hour. And she helped organize the practice. This practice's revenues increased 70% wow. in 2023. We just went over the numbers. 70% because we got the right people on the bus. We're still working on systems. <laughs> just getting the right people on the bus. Sure. We were able to hire hire another associate. As a matter of fact, now we have the third associate just started today. Wow. That's um, great. So that's gratifying. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I would think so. It sounds like it. That's awesome. I'm curious, particularly given uh, your affinity for Dan Kennedy, if you have any particular perspectives on the approach that practices should be taking to sort of generate new patient flow. So... I just had a great uh, quote that I read from Dan. I, I love reading Dan and I get his, I still belong to his programs. I get to speak to him usually once a month, which is great. So let me find it because I just had it. I'll read the quote. It says, go to unobvious places where your customers are but your competitors are not. And I took that advice to heart early on in my career. And I realized that my patients were also patients of physicians. And I built a physician marketing system where most of my referrals came from physicians. And if not from physicians, then internal referrals from other patients. 
But it was through Dan that I started thinking, okay, I'm going to, Dan's principle is, you know, define your market, create a message that resonates with your market, and then figure out a media that will get to that market. Yeah. Right? So market message media. So I started thinking who else sees my market were other physicians. So I built up a practice. As a matter of fact, when I was in this mastermind that Dan started, when he realized what I had done, they started calling me the doctor's dentist because I built up a practice of all physicians and their patients. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's, it's always surprising to me that so few dentists look to cultivate those relationships. And particularly in today's world where the sort of link between oral health and other systemic health issues, inflammatory disease and so forth, has gotten so much attention, not only in the, in the trade press, but also in the lay press. So I was lucky when I started, when I joined my first, when I was, first got out of, first of all, I did a residency program in a hospital. So I got used to working with physicians. And then when I joined this group practice, it was up by Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center here in New York. And I joined the faculty and I eventually became the director of the hospital dental residency program, but I was comfortable around physicians. So I did this at first, I did it totally accidentally. But once I realized what I had, I poured gas on it to make it work even better. A lot of dentists feel uncomfortable speaking to their physician colleagues. Oh, absolutely. They shouldn't, but for some odd reason they do. And I, I teach ways. Um, I have a, a physician referral magnet program that I've actually taught. I lectured to the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine about it a couple of years back, their national meeting, because it's really important, especially with sleep. So sleep is entirely medically diagnosed and dentists are really dispensers of appliances. Right. It requires entire medical collaboration, which is one of the reasons. So one of the reasons I went into practice perfect systems was because I saw doctors who recognized this oral systemic link, but were unable to implement any of the strategies, whether or not it was sleep or it was um, back taking back salivary analysis and bacteria profiles. I was, a, I was a founding member of the American Academy for Oral Systemic Health because I early on, I understood the interrelationship between what goes on in the mouth and the rest of the body. Yeah, yeah. Um, it requires collaboration. And too often dentists have practiced in a solitary environment. You know, no dentist really has to be on staff at a hospital. They don't have to talk to any physicians if they don't want to. I just think it's it's a huge opportunity that's missed. Again, especially as you pointed out, everybody now understands the relationship of oral health to overall health. So. Right, right. I was working with a practice and said, look, for every patient who you give a periodontal diagnosis to, you should be sending them to a physician to have them evaluated for other corollary inflammatory issues. 
And if you do that, I guarantee you that that physician will send patients to you who they see for you to do your part of, of the equation. And particularly if you, as you described, spend some time creating some educational content and some other things that are of value to that, uh, that physician referral. So I, as, as you probably know, I love writing. I wrote my first book in 2010. It was called What the Tooth Theory Didn't Tell You. And it, it was for patients. That was actually at the instigation of this mastermind group. You know, Dan Kennedy's a big, big on writing a book, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I've written a book uh, in my niche. Did you write it with Adam Witte? Uh, no, I did it on my own and then uh, published it through uh, Book Baby. And for all the same reasons you described, because as an aficionado and follower of Dan, that's clearly one of the things he he says every business owner should do. So what I did for physicians is I wrote a book called Beyond Ah. So, you know, you go to most physicians, they stick a tongue blade in your mouth and they say, say ah. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, I want physicians to think beyond that. So I wrote a book. So I've now written four books, five, five books, and I see a problem or an opportunity. Right. And I write a book. So I'm in the process of writing a book now about hiring, because I believe that when I now look back at seven years of practice, perfect systems, I believe that that was the single greatest opportunity in most practices is getting the right people on the bus, getting the wrong people off the bus and getting the right people on the right seats on the bus. Just like, you know, Jim Collins says in good to great. Right. Right. I'm interested in what, if any opinions or perspective you have sort of on a DSO phenomenon, you know, obviously I come from that world I continue to work with practices that are interested in exploring the relationship with the DSO. But I know that, one, it's clearly not for everybody. And even though it's more widely accepted today than it was 10 years ago, you know, there's still a lot of folks that break out in a rash when they hear the word DSO. <laughs> so, you know, DSOs fill a void. They solve a problem. And the problem was, as I recognized early on in my career, dentists either don't like the business aspect of practice or they just don't want to deal with it at all. Right. Along comes DSOs and say, doctor, you go ahead, you take care of your patients, let us deal with all the management issues. And I think that that's probably appropriate for a good percentage of dentists. You know, I do polls every year in my practice management course at Temple. What do people want to do? Do they want to own multiple practices? They want to own single practices. Do they want to be employees? Do they want to go into academics? Do they want to go into research? And over the past four years, I've been teaching it. The polls have a very interesting trend. And the trend is fewer people want to own practices. Many of my students, and I'm sure that this is true around the country, more and more of them want to be employees. And I think it's, it has a lot to do with that academic debt issue. I think a lot of young dentists want to get out, have 
some assurance they're going to make a reasonable income and have the ability to service their debt and are less confident that they can do that if they go into the uh, go down the independent practice uh, uh, lane. I was in a in a conference probably four or five years ago, and I heard Pat Bauer, the chief uh, operating officer for uh, Heartland, speak. In that year, they hired ninety somewhere between ninety and ninety five percent of the graduating uh, dental class from the University of Florida, which was remarkable to me. So I met Pat in 2000, maybe, yeah, it was actually right before the pandemic. I actually met Pat at uh, the Midwest uh, meeting in Chicago um, because I had facilitated a practice transition to Heartland. Mm -hmm. I was invited to their executive meeting and it was interesting. I mean, it was eye-opening, you know, so... Here I had this practice in Washington State, and the practice owner just, she wanted an exit. No, dentists don't think about exit strategies. Right. 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 Was it Jim Warlow has a book called Build to Sell? Great book. Yeah. I wish I read that book 40 years ago. But most dentists don't have an, an exit strategy, so they build if they're successful sometimes because of themselves, sometimes despite, they build a, you know, a big business and they have no clue about where to go with it. Yeah. Um, and this particular practice owner, the only way she was going to get money from that practice was with a DSO exit strategy. And we identified Heartland as having opened an office recently in a nearby area. So we knew they were interested because that's one of the, so the models of the DSO is, you know, you sort of build a group, concentration, and yeah. right? Exactly. And then you expand upon that. Right. So it was ideal for them. And I got friendly with the, with the execs and, and it was great. And I've, I've now transitioned to help transition a couple of practices to DSOs, um, you know, because sometimes, especially considering student debt, you have these young students with tremendous debt. How are they going to get the capital, especially now that interest rates are going up? How are they going to get the capital to buy a practice? Right. They right. just don't have it. Um, plus the fact that, as you well know, if you're an individual, a smaller practice, and if you sell it to an individual, you're not getting nearly the amount yeah, that you get exactly. from a DSO. Yeah. I've written, uh, I've got a... Uh a short paper on practice valuation. And, you know, the limitation for a dentist to dentist uh, transaction historically is what a bank is willing to lend. Because when a dentist buys a practice, he's got to borrow the money in order to make it happen. And the banks have a hard ceiling generally on what they're willing to loan. And you look at, and historically that's been pretty much in the range between 60 and 80% of the top line revenue of the practice. And, you know, the DSOs come to town, you know, they have an entirely different approach, clearly very deep pockets. And it's not uncommon, you know, to see deals that are two, three, four times top line revenue. So I, that's a pretty profound economic difference. 
for sure. Now, one of the issues is, as you say, in my experience, a lot of practice owners don't think about it until they begin to bump up against that endpoint. And, you know, with a DSO, generally they want the practice owner to stay on board and continue for usually a minimum of four to five years uh, post-transaction. So if, you know, if the practice owner's goal is to sell and walk away, DSO is not really a viable alternative in most circumstances. So I, I actually just helped the transition to a practice in St. Louis that the doctor insisted on walking away. And we were able to find it. So we had two people, we had two potential buyers. One was an individual and one was a DSO. And we came exactly up against what you had uh, said. The bank was giving this individual buyer a problem. And the DSO happened to have had someone who was moving from another area to this area yeah. was able to plug them in right away. And not only did the doc get more money, but he was able to get his wish of being able to leave after uh, six months. Yeah. After six months. So yeah. you can, if you can find your way to that kind of a circumstance, uh, then occasionally, and it's more the exception than the rule, certainly that there's, uh, you know, some available flexibility around that, uh, that employment commitment. But clearly, you know, the DSOs have uh, created a pretty disruptive phenomenon in the profession. You know, I share with folks fully 70 plus percent of physicians either work for hospital loan systems or through consolidators like uh, that are the physician equivalent of a DSO. So you've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30% that still remain in an independent practice. And that number is dwindling every day. And you look at dentistry and the trade press suggests that somewhere in the range of 22 to 25% of practices are currently affiliated with the DSO. And so the runway for continued expansion in the DSO world is uh, pretty substantial. And you, you see, I mean, these companies, uh, the last company that I worked for is maybe the fifth or sixth largest uh, dental care alliance based in Florida. And they, uh, they're just now cracking the 400 number in terms of affiliated practices. And they're, they're more than a billion dollars in top line revenue. And when you think 400 practices as a percentage of the total is like 0.0001, you know, I mean, it's, it's incredibly small. Um, so you can build very large and robust enterprises in that world without necessarily a huge number of practice affiliations. Yeah, see, I think that's something that most dentists, they don't understand cash flow. Right. And they don't understand that growth sucks cash. Yeah. And frankly, over the past decade, didn't really make that much of a difference because money costs nothing. Well, that's no longer the case. Yeah, that's changing. And and as you said, you know, the demographics of 
uh, what's coming out of dental schools is changing pretty significantly, and that also alters the equation. So in the profession, the biggest bandwidth are folks that look like you and me, baby boomers. And, you know, you, so you've got a lot of kind of a growing number of potential sellers. And then at the other end of the uh, funnel, you've got a, a decreasing number of potential buyers. And so the DSOs have clearly stepped into that vacuum in a, in a pretty significant way. I saw an interesting... It, the complexity of what's going on in terms of what's required to be successful in an independent practice has really gotten to be complex and expensive. You know, you just when you think about, you know, the, the PPO factor and, you know, dentists giving away 30 to 40% of their revenue in order to participate with PPOs. And, you know, the concept of PPOs when they first started, hey, participate with us, you'll get a lot more patients. Um, well, now everybody in the world participates with PPOs. And so when you participate, that patient volume is not generally not coming. And the other thing is you have very little leverage in terms of negotiating with them around those allowable fees because, you know, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, if you said to the PPO, hey, if you don't negotiate with me, I'm going to opt out, that had impact. In today's world, you say that and the PPO says, so go. Don't let the door hit you in the butt because we got 20 other guys with stones throw from your office that are participating with us. So it's a, it's a changed world for sure. And, and the PPOs, in my experience, seem to be decreasing the allowable fees as opposed to increasing them. And clearly that's a double whammy in this environment where, you know, the expenses of operating a practice are continuing to climb. Uh, staff are more expensive, materials and equipment are more expensive, rents are more expensive. If you're making fewer dollars per procedure, that, that, uh, that's a tough equation. Yeah, and, and it's actually even worse because a lot of the insurers, in order to make their plans palatable to employers, have different levels of plans. And when you sign up for a PPO, you never actually know what plan you're signing up for. They force you to take all of them. Right. Once you sign on that dotted line, you no longer have the option of saying, no, I don't want that plan. I only want people with other plans. Uh-uh. Doesn't work that way. Right. Right. They sort of bait you. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's interesting Uh you know, they're never going to come to you proactively and say, we want to increase your fees. They may come to you and say, we want to decrease your fees, but it's never going to be the other way around. And it's remarkable to me the number of dentists that make absolutely no effort to try and negotiate in their own interest. So I had an interesting experience with that uh, recently because, and it has to do with dental sleep medicine. So dental sleep medicine is a medically diagnosed and a medically insured code. E0486 is the code for a oral appliance. I've had dentists who've gone directly to insurers to try and negotiate and up the, 
up the cost, the uh, reimbursement without any success. But I recently had a client who enlisted the help of a physician colleague who knew somebody at the insurer's company and was able to negotiate a significantly 20, I think 22% higher reimbursement for the same code. Yeah, that's that's profound. Uh, when you can, and again, you know, going back to Heartland, Heartland knows pretty clearly kind of what they're going to be able to do with those PPO fees. And so when they analyze a practice, they look at that and they can tell you in pretty discreet terms, hey, you keep doing just exactly what you've been doing. And this is the kind of uh, revenue growth you can anticipate if you uh, work with us. It's an interesting uh, phenomenon, that's for sure. Absolutely. Uh, Michael, I've taken a ton of your time. You've provided extremely valuable content from my my perspective. Uh, I have to say, uh, you think very much the way that I think about practice-related issues, for, for sure. Um, I have two final questions for you. One is there... Anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to share? And then the second thing would be if one of my listeners has an interest in trying to get a hold of you, what's going to be the best way for them to do that? So the best way of reaching me is through practiceperfectsystems at gmail.com. Okay. Uh, You'll get directly to me. And um, as far as final thoughts, I see a huge opportunity in dentistry. The need for dentistry is not going down. It's only getting greater. Right. And I think that if doctors are interested, whether or not it's through a DSO system, a PPO system, or a FIFA service system, whatever system you think is right for you, it's just a matter of educating yourself and getting the advice that you need. You know, my practice was really great even before I met Dan. But once I started working with Dan and with a coach, my practice just soared. Yeah. And, you know, I want to reinforce that message uh, because in my experience over four decades, invariably the practices that were the highest performing almost universally worked with outside advisors slash coaches slash consultants. You know, I think the nature of dentists is they tend to be very independent and operate sort of on their own as much as they possibly can. Uh, but I'm here to, to reinforce what you just said is, you know, getting outside help in my judgment can have exponential effect. Couldn't agree more. Great. Uh, again, Michael, thanks so much for uh, for doing this. I absolutely uh, appreciate it. And uh, you've provided a phenomenal amount of value to the listeners. We real pleasure uh, meeting you and having this conversation. Uh, continued success. And if there's anything, ever anything I can do uh, for you, don't hesitate to get in touch. I will. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too.
This has been Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners. We hope you've gained valuable insights and practical wisdom that will guide you on your journey to success with your practice. To visit Stan Kinder on the web, go to www.everythingdso.com. If you found today's episode helpful, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an opportunity to hear brilliant insights from dental industry insiders. Remember, whether you're planning your next strategic move, seeking ways to enhance your practice's value, or dreaming of expanding your dental empire, we're here to guide you on your way to success.